Chapter Four, Part Nine of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One, by Charles Mackay. The Alchemists, Part Nine, The Rosicrucians. It was during the time of the last-mentioned author that the sect of the Rosicrucians first began to create a sensation in Europe. The influence which they exercised upon opinion during their brief career, and the permanent impression which they have left upon European literature, claim for them a special notice. Before their time, alchemy was but a groveling delusion, and theirs is the merit of having spiritualized and refined it. They also enlarged its sphere, and supposed the possession of the philosopher's stone to be, not only the means of wealth, but of health and happiness, and the instrument by which man could command the services of superior beings, control the elements to his will, defy the obstructions of time and space, and acquire the most intimate knowledge of all the secrets of the universe. Wild and visionary as they were, they were not without their uses, if it were only for having purged the superstitions of Europe of the dark and disgusting forms with which the monks had peopled it, and substituted in their stead a race of mild, graceful, and beneficent beings. They are said to have derived their name from Christian Rosenkreutz, or Rosecross, a German philosopher, who travelled in the Holy Land towards the close of the fourteenth century. While dangerously ill at a place called Damkar, he was visited by some learned Arabs, who claimed him as their brother in science, and unfolded to him by inspiration all the secrets of his past life, both of thought and of action." They restored him to health by means of the philosopher's stone, and afterwards instructed him in all their mysteries. He returned to Europe in 1401, being then only twenty-three years of age, and drew a chosen number of his friends around him, whom he initiated into the new science, and bound by solemn oaths to keep it secret for a century. He is said to have lived eighty-three years after this period, and to have died in 1484. Many have denied the existence of such a personage as Rosencruz, and have fixed the origin of this sect at a much later epoch. The first dawning of it, they say, is to be found in the theories of Paracelsus and the dreams of Dr. D., who, without intending it, became the actual, though never the recognized founders, of the Rosicrucian philosophy. It is now difficult, and indeed impossible, to determine whether D. and Paracelsus obtained their ideas from the then obscure and unknown Rosicrucians, or whether the Rosicrucians did but follow and improve upon them. Certain it is that their existence was never suspected till the year 1605, when they began to excite attention in Germany. No sooner were their doctrines promulgated than all the visionaries, Paracelists and alchemists, flocked around their standard, and vaunted Rosencruz as the new regenerator of the human race. Michael Mayer, a celebrated physician of that day, and who had impaired his health and wasted his fortune in searching for the philosopher's stone, drew up a report of the tenets and ordinances of the new fraternity, which was published at Cologne in the year 1615. They asserted, in the first place, that the meditations of their founders surpassed everything that had ever been imagined since the creation of the world, without even accepting the revelations of the deity, that they were destined to accomplish the general peace and regeneration of man before the end of the world arrived, that they possessed all wisdom and piety in a supreme degree, that they possessed all the graces of nature, and could distribute them among the rest of mankind according to their pleasure, that they were subject to neither hunger, nor thirst, nor disease, nor old age, nor to any other inconvenience of nature. 
that they knew by inspiration and at the first glance every one who was worthy to be admitted into their society, that they had the same knowledge then which they would have possessed if they had lived from the beginning of the world, and had been always acquiring it, that they had a volume in which they could read all that ever was or ever would be written in other books till the end of time, that they could force to and retain in their service the most powerful spirits and demons, that by the virtue of their songs they could attract pearls and precious stones from the depths of the sea or the bowels of the earth, that God had covered them with a thick cloud by means of which they could shelter themselves from the malignity of their enemies, and that they could thus render themselves invisible from all eyes, that the first eight brethren of the rose-cross had power to cure all maladies, that by means of the fraternity the triple diadem of the Pope would be reduced into dust, that they only admitted two sacraments, with the ceremonies of the primitive church, renewed by them, that they recognized the fourth monarchy and the emperor of the Romans as their chief and the chief of all Christians, that they would provide him with more gold, their treasures being inexhaustible, than the king of Spain had ever drawn from the golden regions of eastern and western Ind. This was their confession of faith. Their rules of conduct were six in number, and as follow. First, that in their travels they should gratuitously cure all diseases. Secondly, that they should always dress in conformity to the fashion of the country in which they resided. Thirdly, that they should, once every year, meet together in the place appointed by the fraternity, or send in writing an available excuse. Fourthly, that every brother, whenever he felt inclined to die, should choose a person worthy to succeed him. Fifthly, that the words rose-cross should be the marks by which they should recognize each other. Sixthly, that their fraternity should be kept secret for six times twenty years. They asserted that these laws had been found inscribed in a golden book in the tomb of Rosencruz, and that the six times twenty years from his death expired in 1604. They were consequently called upon from that time forth to promulgate their doctrine for the welfare of mankind. Footnote. The following legend of the tomb of Rosenkreutz, written by Eustace Budgel, appears in number 379 of The Spectator. A certain person, having occasion to dig somewhat deep in the ground where this philosopher lay interred, met with a small door, having a wall on either side of it. His curiosity, and the hope of finding some hidden treasure, soon prompted him to force open the door. He was immediately surprised by a sudden blaze of light, and discovered a very fair vault. At the upper end of it was a statue of a man in armor, sitting by a table, leaning on his left arm. He held a truncheon in his right hand, and had a lamp burning before him. The man no sooner set one foot within the vault that the statue, erecting itself from its leaning posture, stood bolt upright, and, upon the fellow's advancing another step, lifted up the truncheon in his right hand. The man still ventured a third step, when the statue, with a furious blow, broke the lamp into a thousand pieces, and left his guest in sudden darkness. Upon the report of this adventure, the country people came with lights to the sepulchre, and discovered that the statue, which was made of brass, was nothing more than a piece of clockwork, that the floor of the vault was all loose, and underlaid with several springs, which, upon any man's entering, naturally produced that which had happened. Rosicrucius, say his disciples, made use of this method to show the world that he had reinvented the ever-burning lamps of the ancients, though he was resolved no one would reap any advantage from the discovery. For eight years these enthusiasts made converts in Germany, but they excited little or no attention in other parts of Europe. At last they made their appearance in Paris, and threw all the learned, all the credulous, and all the lovers of the marvellous into commotion. In the beginning of March, 1623, 
the good folks of that city, when they arose one morning, were surprised to find all their walls placarded with the following singular manifesto. We, the deputies of the principal college of the Brethren of the Rose Cross, have taken up our abode, visible and invisible, in this city, by the grace of the Most High, towards whom are turned the hearts of the just. We show and teach without books or signs, and speak all sorts of languages in the countries where we dwell, to draw mankind, our fellows, from error and from death. For a long time this strange placard was the sole topic of conversation in all public places. Some few wondered, but the greater number only laughed at it. In the course of a few weeks two books were published, which raised the first alarm respecting this mysterious society, whose dwelling-place no one knew, and no members of which had ever been seen. The first was called A History of The Frightful Compacts Entered Into Between the Devil and the Pretended Invisibles, with their damnable instructions, the deplorable ruin of their disciples, and their miserable end. The other was called an examination of the new and unknown cabala of the brethren of the rose cross who have lately inhabited the city of paris with the history of their manners the wonders worked by them and many other particulars these books sold rapidly every one was anxious to know something of this dreadful and secret brotherhood the badauds of paris were so alarmed that they daily expected to see the arch-enemy walking in propria persona among them it was said in these volumes that the rosicrucian society consisted of six-and-thirty persons in all, who had renounced their baptism and hope of resurrection. That it was not by means of good angels, as they pretended, that they worked their prodigies, but that it was the devil who gave them power to transport themselves from one end of the world to the other with the rapidity of thought, to speak all languages, to have their purses always full of money, however much they might spend, to be invisible, and penetrate into the most secret places, in spite of fastenings of bolts and bars, and to be able to tell the past and future. These thirty-six brethren were divided into bands or companies. Six of them only had been sent on the mission to Paris, six to Italy, six to Spain, six to Germany, four to Sweden, and two into Switzerland, two into Flanders, two into Lorraine, and two into Franche-Comte. It was generally believed that the missionaries to France resided somewhere in the Marais du Temple. That quarter of Paris soon acquired a bad name, and people were afraid to take houses in it, lest they should be turned out by the six invisibles of the Rose Cross. It was believed by the populace, and by many others whose education should have taught them better, that persons of a mysterious aspect used to visit the inns and hotels of Paris, and eat of the best meats and drink of the best wines, and then suddenly melt away into thin air when the landlord came with the reckoning. That gentle maidens who went to bed alone often awoke in the night and found men in bed with them, of shape more beautiful than the Grecian Apollo, who immediately became invisible when an alarm was raised. It was also said that many persons found large heaps of gold in their houses, without knowing from whence they came. All Paris was in alarm. No man thought himself secure of his goods, no maiden of her virginity, or wife of her chastity, while these Rosicrucians were abroad. In the midst of the commotion a second placard was issued to the following effect. If any one desires to see the brethren of the Rose Cross from curiosity only, he will never communicate with us. But if his will really induces him to inscribe his name in the register of our brotherhood, we, who can judge the thoughts of all men, will convince him of the truth of our promises. For this reason, we do not publish to the world the place of our abode. Thought alone, in unison with the sincere will of those who desire to know us, is sufficient to make us known to them, and them to us." 
Though the existence of such a society as that of the Rose Cross was problematical, it was quite evident that somebody or other was concerned in the promulgation of these placards, which were stuck up on every wall in Paris. The police endeavoured in vain to find out the offenders, and their want of success only served to increase the perplexity of the public. The church very soon took up the question, and the Abbe Gaultier, a Jesuit, wrote a book to prove that, by their enmity to the Pope, they could be no other than disciples of Luther, sent to promulgate his heresy. Their very name, he added, proved that they were heretics, a cross surmounted by a rose being the heraldic device of the arch-heretical Luther. One Garas said they were a confraternity of drunken impostors, and that their name was derived from the garland of roses in the form of a cross, hung over the tables of taverns in Germany as the emblem of secrecy, and from whence was derived the common saying, when one man communicated a secret to another, that it was said, under the rose. Others interpreted the letters F.R.C. to mean, not brethren of the rose cross, but fratre rose cocte, or brothers of the boiled dew, and explained this appellation by alleging that they collected large quantities of morning dew and boiled it, in order to extract a very valuable ingredient in the composition of the philosopher's stone and the water of life. The fraternity thus attacked defended themselves as well as they were able. They denied that they used magic of any kind, or that they consulted the devil. They said they were all happy, that they had lived more than a century, and expected to live many centuries more, and that the intimate knowledge which they possessed of all nature was communicated to them by God himself, as a reward for their piety and other devotion to his service. Those were in error who derived their name from a cross of roses, or called them drunkards. To set the world right on the first point, they reiterated that they derived their name from Christian Rosenkreutz, their founder, and to answer the latter charge they repeated that they knew not what thirst was, and had higher pleasures than those of the palate. They did not desire to meddle with the politics or religion of any man or set of men, although they could not help denying the supremacy of the Pope and looking upon him as a tyrant. Many slanders, they said, had been repeated respecting them, the most unjust of which was, that they indulged in carnal appetites, and under the cloak of their invisibility crept into the chambers of beautiful maidens. They asserted, on the contrary, that the first vow they took on entering the society was a vow of chastity, and that any one among them who transgressed in that particular would immediately lose all the advantages he enjoyed, and be exposed once more to hunger, woe, disease, and death, like other men. So strongly did they feel on the subject of chastity, that they attributed the fall of Adam solely to his want of this virtue. Besides defending themselves in this manner, they entered into a further confession of their faith, they discarded for ever all the old tales of sorcery and witchcraft and communion with the devil. They said there were no such horrid, unnatural, and disgusting beings as the incubi and succubi, and the innumerable grotesque imps that men had believed in for so many ages. Man was not surrounded with enemies like these, but with myriads of beautiful and beneficent beings, all anxious to do him service. The air was peopled with sylphs, the water with undines or naiads, the bowels of the earth with gnomes, and the fire with salamanders. All these beings were the friends of man, and desired nothing so much as that men should purge themselves of all uncleanness, and thus be enabled to see and converse with them. They possessed great power, and were unrestrained by the barriers of space or the obstructions of matter. But man was in one particular their superior. He had an immortal soul, and they had not. They might, however, become sharers in man's immortality, if they could inspire one of that race with the passion of love towards them 
Hence it was the constant endeavor of the female spirits to captivate the admiration of men, and of the male gnomes, sylphs, salamanders, and undines to be beloved by a woman. The object of this passion, in returning their love, imparted a portion of that celestial fire, the soul, and from that time forth the beloved became equal to the lover, and both, when their allotted course was run, entered together into the mansions of felicity. These spirits, they said, watched constantly over mankind, by night and day. Dreams, omens, and presentiments were all their works, and the means by which they gave warning of the approach of danger. But though so well inclined to befriend man for their own sakes, the want of a soul rendered them at times capricious and revengeful. They took offence on slight causes, and heaped injuries instead of benefits, on the heads of those who extinguished the light of reason that was in them by gluttony, debauchery, and other appetites of the body. The excitement produced in Paris by the placards of the Brotherhood and the attacks of the clergy wore itself away after a few months. The stories circulated about them became at last too absurd, even for that age of absurdity, and men began to laugh once more at those invisible gentlemen and their fantastic doctrines. Gabriel Naudet, at that conjuncture, brought out his Avis à la France sur les frères de la Rose-Croix, in which he very successfully exposed the folly of the new sect. This work, though not well written, was well timed. It quite extinguished the Rosicrucians of France, and after that year little more was heard of them. Swindlers in different parts of the country assumed the name at times to cloak their depredations, and now and then one of them was caught and hanged for his too great ingenuity in enticing pearls and precious stones from the pockets of other people into his own, or for passing off lumps of gilded brass for pure gold made by the agency of the philosopher's stone. With these exceptions, oblivion shrouded them. The doctrine was not confined to a sphere so narrow as France alone. It still nourished in Germany, and drew many converts in England. The latter countries produced two great masters in the persons of Jacob Bowman and Robert Flood, pretended philosophers of whom it is difficult to say which was the most absurd and extravagant. It would appear that the sect was divided into two classes. The brothers, Rosier Crucis, who devoted themselves to the wonders of this sublunary sphere, and the brothers Aurier Crucis, who were wholly occupied in the contemplation of things divine. Flood belonged to the first class, and Bauman to the second. Flood may be called the father of the English Rosicrucians, and as such merits a conspicuous niche in the Temple of Folly. He was born in the year 1574 at Milgay in Kent, and was the son of Sir Thomas Flood, treasurer of war to Queen Elizabeth. He was originally intended for the army, but he was too fond of study, and of a disposition too quiet and retiring, to shine in that sphere. His father would not therefore press him to adopt a course of life for which he was unsuited, and encouraged him in the study of medicine, for which he early manifested a partiality. At the age of twenty-five he proceeded to the continent, and being fond of the abstruse, the marvellous, and the incomprehensible, he became an ardent disciple of the school of Paracelsus, whom he looked upon as the regenerator not only of medicine, but of philosophy. He remained six years in Italy, France, and Germany, storing his mind with fantastic notions, and seeking the society of enthusiasts and visionaries. On his return to England in 1605, he received the degree of Doctor of Medicine from the University of Oxford, and began to practice as a physician in London. He soon made himself conspicuous. He Latinized his name from Robert Flood into Robertus Afflictibus, and began the promulgation of many strange doctrines. He avowed his belief in the Philosopher's Stone, the Water of Life, and the Universal Alkahest, and maintained that there were but two principles of all things, which were condensation, 
the boreal or northern virtue, and rarefaction, the southern or austral virtue, a number of demons, he said, ruled over the human frame, whom he arranged in their places in a rhomboid. Every disease had its peculiar demon who produced it, which demon could only be combated by the aid of the demon whose place was directly opposite to his in the rhomboidal figure. Of his medical notions we shall have further occasion to speak in another part of this book, when we consider him in his character as one of the first founders of the magnetic delusion, and its offshoot, animal magnetism, which has created so much sensation in our own day. As if the doctrines already mentioned were not wild enough, he joined the Rosicrucians as soon as they began to make a sensation in Europe, and succeeded in raising himself to high consideration among them. The fraternity having been violently attacked by several German authors, and among others by Libavius, Flood volunteered a reply, and published in 1616 his defense of the Rosicrucian philosophy, under the title of Apologia Compendiaria Fraternitatum de Rosiae Cruci Suspicionis on Enfamiliae Maculis Aspersum Abluens. This work immediately procured him great renown upon the continent, and he was henceforth looked upon as one of the high priests of the sect. Of so much importance was he considered, that Kepler and Gazendi thought it necessary to refute him, and the latter wrote a complete examination of his doctrine. Mersenne also, the friend of Descartes, who had defended that philosopher when accused of having joined the Rosicrucians, attacked Dr. Afluctibus, as he preferred to be called, and showed the absurdity of the brothers of the Rose Cross in general, and of Dr. Afluctibus in particular. Fluctibus wrote a long reply, in which he called Mersenne an ignorant calumniator, and reiterated that alchemy was a profitable science, and the Rosicrucians worthy to be the regenerators of the world. This book was published at Frankfurt, and was entitled Summum Bonum, Quod est Magiae, Cabali, Alchemy, Fratum Rosiae Crucis Veronum, et Adversus Messenium Calumniatorum. Besides this, he wrote several other works upon alchemy, a second answer to Labavius upon the Rosicrucians, and many medical works. He died in London in 1637. After his time, there was some diminution of the sect in England. They excited but little attention, and made no effort to bring themselves into notice. Occasionally some obscure and almost incomprehensible work made its appearance, to show the world that the folly was not extinguished. Eugenius Philalethes, a noted alchemist, who has veiled his real name under this assumed one, translated The Fame and Confession of the Brethren of the Rosy Cross, which was published in London in 1652. A few years afterwards, another enthusiast, named John Hayden, wrote two works on the subject, the one entitled The Wise Man's Crown, or The Glory of the Rosy Cross, and the other, the holy guide, leading the way to unite art and nature with the rosy cross uncovered. Neither of these attracted much notice. A third book was somewhat more successful. It was called A New Method of Rosicrucian Physic, by John Hayden, the servant of God and the secretary of nature. A few extracts will show the ideas of the English Rosicrucians about this period. Its author was an attorney, practicing, to use his own words, at Westminster Hall all term times as long as he lived, and in the vacations devoting himself to the alchemical and Rosicrucian meditation. In his preface, called by him an apologue for an epilogue, he enlightens the public upon the true history and tenets of his sect. Moses, Elias, and Ezekiel were, he says, the most ancient masters of the Rosicrucian philosophy. Those few then existing in England and the rest of Europe were as the eyes and ears of the great king of the universe, seeing and hearing all things, seraphically illuminated, companions of the holy company of unbodied souls and immortal angels, turning themselves proteus-like into any shape, 
and having the power of working miracles. The most pious and abstracted brethren could slack the plague in cities, silence the violent winds and tempests, calm the rage of the sea and rivers, walk in the air, frustrate the malicious aspect of witches, cure all diseases, and turn all metals into gold. He had known in his time two famous brethren of the Rosy Cross, named Walford and Williams, who had worked miracles in his sight, and taught him many excellent predictions of astrology and earthquakes. I desired one of these to tell me, says he, whether my complexion were capable of the society of my good genius. When I see you again, said he, which was when he pleased to come to me, for I knew not where to go to him, I will tell you. When I saw him afterwards, he said, You should pray to God, for a good and holy man can offer no greater or more acceptable service to God than the oblation of himself, his soul. He said also that the good genie were the benign eyes of God, running to and fro in the world, and with love and pity beholding the innocent endeavors of harmless and single-hearted men, ever ready to do them good and to help them. Hayden held devoutly true that dogma of the Rosicrucians, which said that neither eating nor drinking was necessary to men. He maintained that any one might exist in the same manner as that singular people dwelling near the source of the Ganges, of whom mention was made in the travels of his namesake, Sir Christopher Hayden, who had no mouths, and therefore could not eat, but lived by the breath of their nostrils, except when they took a far journey, and then they mended their diet with the smell of flowers. He said that in really pure air there was a fine foreign fatness, with which it was sprinkled by the sunbeams, and which was quite sufficient for the nourishment of the generality of mankind. Those who had enormous appetites he had no objection to see take animal food, since they could not do without it, but he obstinately insisted that there was no necessity why they should eat it. If they put a plaster of nicely cooked meat upon their epigastrium, it would be sufficient for the wants of the most robust and voracious. They would by that means let in no diseases, as they did at the broad and common gate, the mouth, as any one might see by example of drink. For all the while a man sat in water, he was never athirst. He had known, he said, many Rosicrucians, who by applying wine in this manner had fasted for years altogether. In fact, quoth Hayden, we may easily fast all our life, though it be three hundred years, without any kind of meat, and so cut off all danger of disease. This sage philosopher further informed his wondering contemporaries that the chiefs of the doctrine always carried about with them to their place of meeting their symbol, called the R.C., which was an ebony cross, flourished and decked with roses of gold, the cross typifying Christ's sufferings upon the cross for our sins, and the roses of gold, the glory and beauty of his resurrection. This symbol was carried alternately to Mecca, Mount Calvary, Mount Sinai, Haran, and to three other places, which must have been in mid-air, called Casca, Apamia, and Cholotovirasaw Canuk, where the Rosicrucian brethren met when they pleased, and made resolution of all their actions. They always took their pleasures in one of these places, where they resolved all questions of whatsoever had been done, was done, or should be done in the world, from the beginning to the end thereof. And these, he concludes, are the men called Rosicrucians. Towards the end of the seventeenth century, more rational ideas took possession of the sect, which still continued to boast of a few members. They appear to have considered that contentment was the true philosopher's stone, and to have abandoned the insane search for a mere phantom of the imagination. Addison, in The Spectator, number 574, Friday, July 30, 1714, gives an account of his conversation with a Rosicrucian, from which it may be inferred that the sect had grown wiser in their deeds, though in their talk they were as foolish as ever. I was once, says he, 
engaged in discourse with a Rosicrucian about the great secret. He talked of the secret as of a spirit which lived within an emerald, and converted everything that was near it to the highest perfection that it was capable of. It gives a luster, says he, to the sun, and water to the diamond. It irradiates every metal, and enriches lead with all the properties of gold. It heightens smoke into flame, flame into light, and light into glory. He further added, that a single ray of it dissipates pain and care and melancholy from the person upon whom it falls. In short, says he, its presence naturally changes every place into a kind of heaven. After he had gone on for some time in this unintelligible cant, I found that he jumbled natural and moral ideas together into the same discourse, and that his great secret was nothing else but content. End of chapter 4, part 9